Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Neil Ford. Neil is Director, Software Architect, and Meme Wrangler at ThoughtWorks, a global IT consultancy with a focus on end-to-end software development and delivery. His professional focus includes designing and building of large-scale enterprise applications. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Neil, before we jump into the meat of things, you want to give us a, a, a better introduction or maybe a little bit more of an introduction to you and, and what it is that that, uh, that brought you into this industry? Sure. So I took a, a very circuitous course through university uh, starting out. I started actually my first major was journalism, which is where all the writing comes from. And then I switched over into engineering and tried to be a mechanical engineer for a while, but didn't care for that. But I was always fascinated by computers. And so I ended up getting my degree in computer science and I immediately went to work for a consulting company, uh, a small consulting company in Atlanta, which is where I'm still based, called the DSW Group. And I ended up being there for uh, more than 12 years uh, and eventually became the CTO of that company. But uh, during the course of that company, we were at, at our height, about 50 people. And I realized at one point that I was the, for better or for worse, I was sort of the alpha geek. You know, I was the one that had the most experience and I was speaking at conferences. I'd written a couple of books by that time and started casting around for it was actually a conference series that I was speaking at where a lot of really engaged and interesting people. And I thought, oh, and, you know, it'd be really cool to work for a place like that. And that's what caused me to poke around and find ThoughtWorks, the consulting company that I joined almost 17 years ago now. So I've really only had two jobs in my uh, software development career, but it's spanned almost 30 years now with uh, two different companies, which I guess makes me an outlier uh, in terms of... Uh, jumping around. I don't, I don't jump around much. Uh, so anyway, uh, as I joined ThoughtWorks, I progressed into software architecture, but increasingly uh, started living up to uh, the title that you mentioned uh, briefly. ThoughtWorks is one of those companies that lets you set your own title. And at one point I chose Meme Wrangler as my title, Meme being from the Dawkins idea of viral unit of thought. But it became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because I realized at some point that Consultants have a superpower, and that is you get to work on lots of different projects and see overlapping things and and different approaches. And if you're an inherent pattern matcher like I am, which a lot of people in software architecture, you know, you kind of naturally pattern match things, that's where books come from. And so that really uh, fueled a lot of my uh, writing uh, and uh, have been there for a while. And, And now mostly my consulting practice is around the sort of intersection of software architecture and uh, agile engineering, which, of course, ThoughtWorks is well known for. So what are you working on these days? What does a typical day look like for you? Well, um, nothing is typical in my world. And, you know, ThoughtWorks is a sort of an atypical company, and I'm an atypical creature uh, within ThoughtWorks. Uh, I don't do a lot of uh, heads-down uh, project development, you know, day-to-day, because I have a very fractured schedule. I, I still have a lot of speaking engagements. I teach a number of classes for O'Reilly online, uh, et cetera. 
And uh, so, but I do a lot of advisory work for clients. And so I'm actually actively working with three different clients now, part-time, almost all advisory stuff around distributed architectures, uh, which is uh, where the material for the software architecture, the hard parts book came from and is providing advice and structure to uh, making a lot of these difficult decisions because, you know, we're consultants and we often find ourselves in places with difficult decisions and doing good trade-off analysis is uh, the, the thing that we're trying to get better at. And so uh, I do a lot of advisory work for clients now and, and uh, continue to, uh, to speak and write, et cetera. Yeah, I was reintroduced to your name and your writings recently. A, a friend of mine has moved into a pure, pure uh, enterprise architecture role from a software development role, and and he was getting himself uh, kind of in the mindset and and doing a lot of research and reading and 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 picked up your fundamentals of software architecture book and recommended it to me, and uh, I. I um, purchased the audible version and listened to it very, very quickly. And uh, he and I have discussed it several times and, and we both think of it uh, akin to the DevOps handbook for software developers that we, we think very highly of, of that, that book and, and think that uh, in, on the architecture side of the house, that this one is, is also kind of equally as, uh, profound and and all encompassing that it, it covers a lot of the the software architect mindset and different patterns and and different questions that one needs to think for themselves when they're de- designing systems. Is that what you set out to to be to to develop to create, or is that just kind of what came out? Well, I appreciate that the 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 kind words about it. It was very much as though that was very much the intent, and it was very much the result of iterative design. So we're big proponents in our book of doing iterative design. That you know nothing big and complicated can just fall out of your head, you know, without making some changes to it. And uh, uh, many years ago, almost a decade ago now, Mark and I started looking around. Mark Richards, my co-author, started looking around, and it was actually a uh, a news segment that I saw where you know top ten best jobs and software architect was like number three. It's like wow, that's interesting. And I started doing some research and salary surveys across the world. It was always uh, in the top ten or very high. And but the problem was, how do you go from not being a software architect? to being a software architect. There's no real clear curriculum because it's this weird, messy, kind of multifaceted role with, you know, a lot of weird, uh, 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 a lot of breadth is required and a lot of uh, 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 skills, you know, social skills and technology skills and engineering skills. And so Mark and I got together and started thinking about, well, if we're going to teach a class to become a software architect? What would the absolute bare essentials be? And we started teaching this as workshops, these hands-on workshops. And after we taught those for four or five years, we realized that, and that was very much an iterative process, like, okay, we need to talk more about this and less about this. And, and by the time we talked about it for a while, we realized, hey, we could we can distill this down to into a book and try to cover you know just the essential parts of being a software architect. Because if you tried to cover every aspect, it would be a 25,000 page book and unreadable. Uh, and so that was very much our intent was, you know, to uh, create a, a cast strength version of a, a software architecture, if, if you will. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that that's what you think it is, because that was very much the intent of it. 
Yeah, I, and I appreciate that approach, and I also appreciate that there are a couple of different, like you said, kind of iterations, or, or I'm seeing them as iterations being the fundamentals of software architecture, software architecture, the hard parts, or, or I'm maybe misquoting the title exactly, but seeing that, you know, here here is the distinction for the fundamentals and the mindset and that type of thing. I wonder if maybe we should spend a few minutes on defining software architecture and in, in you know what what is that like I, I recently had a meet and greet with with a new architect that I'll be uh, working on on a project with and and you know reached out in in a text format message and and he said you know I I do a lot of drawing pictures and, and diagrams and things like that so like is it more than drawing pictures and thinking <laughs> about uh, systems conceptually? It is. Uh, and that's actually a really surprisingly difficult question to answer. And we actually dodged trying to answer that question in the uh, fundamentals book because we realized it was kind of a rabbit hole. And interestingly enough, we uh, took a stab at doing a, f a more formal definition in software architecture of hard parts and also abandoned that as a hopeless venture. <laughs> because the problem is, so uh, there's a famous definition by uh, Martin Fowler, who's actually uh, quoting Ralph Johnson, that software architecture is about the important stuff whatever that is. And so, but we have, a, so I'm going to try out a new definition of software architecture that we've been working on. So we can't define software architecture, but we can define what a software architecture decision is. A software architecture decision is one where all the different possibilities have significant trade-offs associated with them. I think that's really the crunchy center of software architecture's trade-off analysis, because if it were easy, everybody would do it. It's the architects who have to make these difficult decisions because there are no good decisions here. There are only least worst decisions. That's one of the things that Mark and I talk about is we don't try to uh, encourage you to come up with the best design because best implies that you've maximized every possibility. What you're often shooting for is the least worst design, the least worst compromises and trade-offs and all the, the messy things that, that go into uh, something that's, that's software architecture. And so that's really our new definition of something software architecture. And that really is a nice differentiator from something like design, because design are the things where the decisions don't have long-term consequences and uh, trade-offs associated with them. So it's still a kind of a squishy definition, but that's our, our latest take on, uh, you know, trying to define this hard to define thing. And certainly uh, what you're talking about is this kind of structural topology. And that's absolutely part of software architecture because that's where a lot of the major trade-offs come in. But also important decisions about communication styles and engineering practices and, you know, how you use version control and continuous delivery pipelines and all those things also. And, you know, the ability to present your ideas. One of the things, the entire third part of our book is about what are called soft skills. And Mark and I talk uh, uh, jokingly that that's the most difficult part for a lot of software architects, because no matter how brilliant your idea is, if you can't present that to the people who write checks and convince them, you're never going to get to do it. And so your ability to present your ideas effectively is also part of being a software architect. And that gets back to my earlier statement of why is it so difficult to become a software architect? Because there's so many different things you have to be good at. And so here, I think, is the best perspective for your listeners about this is you cannot possibly master all the facets of software architecture at one time. But think of it as building your talent stack. 
So being able to do effective presentations is one part of your talent stack. Uh, being able to do good topology design is another good talent stack. Understanding distributed architectures. And so you're building a kind of a portfolio of skills that people need. And what you want is a kind of a unique footprint of skills that you have in your portfolio uh, that you can bring uh, to problems. Uh, and you don't have to be the best at any one of those. You just need a unique combination of those things. And so I think uh, so pretty much every software architect I know suffers from imposter syndrome for at least some or multiple aspects of their job. And it's also a role where you can continue to grow constantly. As a software architect, if you don't know things about uh, machine learning algorithms, you should learn that. If you don't know about DevOps practices, you should learn that because that what you're really hunting for is a good breadth of information because that feeds better trade-off analysis when it comes time to make those trade-off decisions. The more you know about the implications of those decisions, the better you can make decisions. So many notes, John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm trying to think of how to how to how to put this. I don't want to. I I do not have the social skills. It's true. <laughs> so you, you're saying you do not interact well with the other humanoids. Generally, <laughs> yeah. Computer computer, I'm good with uh, most of the time. Although we've had some disagreements recently. <laughs> the architecture of a software system. Most software developers find themselves in in brownfield development, right? Like the the, the things have already been made, mm -hmm. right? So the architecture of the system is the patterns that already exist for accomplishing whatever goals are in the system. And all of them are usually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, at least, you know, from the opinion of the developer, it's like, Oh, all this code is bad. This is terrible. I hate it all. We should rewrite it. We could do it better. Uh, not really though. Mm -hmm. um, but so, and, and well, and in greenfield environments, my experience has been that whatever, pattern or system I choose to use to accomplish whatever goal I'm trying to accomplish, I'm always wrong. So the closest that in my own development I've gotten to thinking about actual architecture has been how can I mitigate the bad decision I'm about to make? Mm -hmm. Whereas your description of it earlier was to kind of choose the least worst approach which to me sounds like you've done way more investigation into how terrible the decision you're about to make is. Well, so, so ultimately, how do, we, how do we think about those things better or, or what are the fundamentals that I'm missing when I'm thinking of like greenfield development and trying to come up with a new system where I want to accomplish these goals? How can I think about that in a way where I'm not immediately going to go, oh, this was a bad decision. Let me see how I can switch to something else. I did a keynote years ago called uh, uh, Why Does Yesterday's Best Practice Become Tomorrow's Anti-Pattern? Which seems like it happens over and over again. But what you're really talking about is the subject of the book that I wrote before the Fundamentals book, which was Building Evolutionary Architectures, which we're actually working on a second edition of. That is the, the primary focus of that book is how do you build systems where you can, in fact, make architectural decision changes in flight as part of the project. And there are, there are really two parts of that. Part of it is the mechanics, the engineering practices that allow you to do that. And the, the great insight there was one of my co-authors, Rebecca Parsons, who's the ThoughtWorks CTO, 
but she spent some time in the evolutionary computing world before she became a consultant. And uh, she was a, a computer science PhD for a while. But she took this idea of this sort of metaphorical mashup from the evolutionary computing world called a, a fitness function, which is how you guide a, an algorithm and applied that to software architecture. And that really is the mechanics of how you can make decisions in software architecture, but build safety nets around those decisions. So let's say, for example, you've decided I need a certain level of performance to be successful with this application. But I also want to experiment with synchronous versus asynchronous communication or choreography versus orchestration or some of these other things. The idea of evolutionary architecture is, well, let's put an architectural fitness function in place that measures performance. So it's kind of the architectural equivalent of a unit test. And now, once I've got that in place, I can fiddle around with all these other patterns and know that I'm not breaking that important thing that I want to preserve over time. So that's really the mechanics of how you build systems like that. But towards your the later part of your question, there is a fair amount of trade-off analysis that needs to happen. And that's one of the things that a lot of organizations miss is, you know, what are the actual trade-offs for this decision? And one of the things that I try to coach young architects at ThoughtWorks on is that don't evangelize stuff because you're just setting yourself up for it turning out to be something bad. Even if it's not bad now, the ecosystem may change and make it bad later. Instead, you should always be the objective arbiter of trade-offs. And that's the real skill you should hone as an architect. Uh, Mark, my co-author, has a great phrase that I've stolen, uh, that software architecture is the stuff you can't Google. When you're a developer, you get really good at Googling for solutions to problems. In fact, I bet you figured out exactly what part of the stack trace gets you the highest quality hits on Google when you search for stuff. But try Googling for, should I use orchestration or choreography for the accounting workflow? And Google's going to come back and say, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. So you can't Google for software architecture solutions, but what you can do is get better at doing that trade-off analysis within your own ecosystem. And that's a large part of what that uh, most recent book is, is how do you do trade-off, modern trade-off analysis? Uh, and the, in fact, the entire last chapter is uh, basically uh, tips of how to uh, to do that. In In the past... Well, I, I know John and I have, have both kind of held the belief, uh, whether it be correct or incorrect, that, you know, again, I'm going to say it in a bad way. <laughs> Forgive me for, for my phrasing. You know, like, why do we, why do we need architects? Who, who actually writes the code? It doesn't matter. The architect tells you, use this pattern, do this thing this way. And then ultimately, the developers are the ones that are writing the code. So they're going to screw up whatever vision the architect had, <laughs> and they're going to they're going to write what they know how to write. They might they might try to use you know uh, a service bus communication process, or they might might try to use something else. But it's not going to be like if the architect had sat down and written the thing. It's not going to be what the architect would have done. It'll be it'll be an attempt at what the architect might have done. <laughs> so ultimately, aren't aren't the developers, the actual architects making the decisions? And at what point do we, do we actually need someone with a title of architect? 
So this is a great question. This is a common trope from the agile world. Ah, we don't need those stinking architects. You know, we can, we'll just make all the decisions. In fact, when I joined ThoughtWorks, I was joined. Uh, I joined as an architect. My my uh, offer letter actually said application architect. But then when I first met somebody at ThoughtWorks, they said, "Oh, hey, how are you? You know, who are you? What, what's your role here?" And I said, oh, "I'm an architect." And they immediately said, "We don't have architects here." Now, we have tech leads or we have developers because of exactly that attitude. But there is a good place for a dedicated architect's role within an organization because if you only have developers making decisions about things, first of all, they don't have quite the scope that an architect has around DevOps and who is talking to the business analyst to figure out exactly what the relationship of these components should be and those kind of decisions that should be made. They're also the ones primarily responsible for those architecture fitness functions around things that only architects or architects plus like DevOps care about, performance, scalability, elasticity, all those things. You don't get those by accident just by hacking away at code. So a lot of this depends on the sophistication of the project. So the analogy I use, and you know, we have all these tortured metaphors in the software world. But if I'm building a doghouse, I don't need a process. I need lumber. But if I'm building a 12-story office building, I need plans. I need architecture. I need floor plans. And how many elevators do I need? And those are important decisions that you don't want to mess up because it's really hard to start over and unbuild the building and to put those things in place. Those are the kind of decisions that architects make and continue to make throughout the life of the project. This is not some sort of whiteboard exercise where you draw a perfect equation and then drop the whiteboard marker and walk away. They're constant decisions that come up. And in fact, developers bring up many of the important decisions that architects have to deal with on a daily basis, which is one of the reasons we are adding ultimately in favor of architects being hands-on on the projects that they're working on. Probably not in the critical path. And in fact, my favorite way to do that is to pair with different roles on the project on a regular basis. So you see part of the back end and the front end and the user interface and the data architecture. And that gives you a broad scope and helps you make decisions. And it keeps you engaged with what's going on, both from a, a a governance standpoint you were talking about, but also to make sure that your vision is being uh, implemented and important decisions that come up that have significant trade-offs. Not all significant trade-off decisions happen early in a project. Some of them happen as you go along. So let me attack the first part of your question, which is also a very good part of this question. So let's say that you've chosen a layered architecture, that you've decided, I want a distinct presentation layer, business rules, et cetera. How can you make sure that developers are going to implement that layered architecture correctly, particularly if they bump into some kind of problem like, oh, it's taking a long time for a quest to make it through all those layers. I'll just cheat and bypass all those layers and go directly to the database. And, you know, maybe it's, a ask better, it's better to ask forgiveness and permission kind of a thing. But this is exactly where the mechanics of evolutionary architecture come in. Look at this tool called ArcUnit. There's a similar tool in the .NET world called NetArcTest, and it literally lets you write a unit test that says this layer cannot talk directly to this other layer. So you can codify those governance rules in architecture in unit tests, uh, fitness functions, to validate the really important parts of your design are in fact being paid attention to. You cannot post messages to this enterprise service bus or to this message queue from this service to this other service. This service can talk to this one, but not this other one. And so you can, in fact, codify some of those governance rules, which brings me full circle to the other really important role that architects have ongoing on a project, and that's governance. 
security is a big deal on projects. You don't want developers making decisions that open up security holes by accident. But communication styles and all these decisions that come up, data distribution, distributed architectures, who should own this data, who can see it, who can update it, is a constant decision that comes up. And so there is definitely a role for architect. But we also talk about a role that we call an accidental architect, which is somebody on a team that doesn't actually have the title, but they're making decisions with trade-offs, which is in our definition, architect. So we try not to get caught up on the title, but more the role and uh, the uh, value that it adds to the project. Because the title's all over the place, you know, different companies, I mean, it's made up, it's a made up title anyway. So different companies have leaned in hard to the made upness of it. <laughs> yeah, my, my sister's husband is a, a an architect and like a building lumber houses, office space architect. And, and the first time she heard me use the term architect as it applies to software development, uh, she, she kind of gave me a, a, a mean scolding look like that. That's our word. Stop it. Well, I was doing a workshop at a, a university on, on my book, Building Evolutionary Architectures. And one of the breaks, this guy came running in the room, really excited. He's like, are you running this workshop? And I said, yeah. And he said, I want to talk to you about this new building material I've developed that would allow you to build buildings that can evolve. Just go, no, 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 no. Hold on. <laughs> Wrong kind of architecture. This is software architecture, not building architecture. So he was very disappointed. He thought he had found his, uh, his secret to his new material success. This, but <laughs> early early in my career and and for the first decade or more i, I was working with a, a variety of small companies small teams small projects and and there wasn't the the role of architect there wasn't an individual uh, as an architect and clayton and i worked on on several smaller companies smaller projects like that and that was kind of the gist around that we, we are all architects and we all wear that that same hat mm -hmm. Uh, in the last eight or 10 years, I've been working on bigger and bigger projects for bigger and bigger companies where there are those higher, higher overarching roles of a, an architect role, keeping an eye on the, the, the whole composed system and what that entails. And, and I'm appreciating that more and more because mm -hmm. I, I've, evaluate my strengths and my capabilities and my abilities. And I'm a good implementer and a good choreographer of uh, messages and, and interactions between disparate systems, but maybe, you know, not yet of the, the capability or, or capacity to orchestrate whole monolithic systems. And I use monolith as size, but I also know that there are a variety of different patterns that we, we in the industry are throwing around and using sometimes correctly, even uh, microservices and distributed architectures and event-based systems and monoliths and distributed monoliths. How do we keep it all straight <laughs> as software developers, as software architects, as anyone in, in the role of de defining and building applications these days? Well, it's a great question, and and it's it's one of those things that it, our industry keeps moving so fast. You cannot at any point just check out and say, "Okay, I know everything. I can you know just coast the rest of my career." Uh, and in fact, uh, this is living proof of exactly what I'm talking about because I would be willing to bet that everyone whose ears I'm speaking into right now, you're not actually doing part of your job. This is an extra part of your job. You're mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or driving 
driving home or something like that. This is not during your work time, but this is something that you do to keep track of all of the crazy things that happen in our world. And that's why, you know, enthusiasm for new stuff is, is one of the drivers for many people who are successful in this world, because you have to keep always looking at new stuff. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting over the course of my career is how much more we are forced to specialize now. Uh, when I joined ThoughtWorks, there was a distinct mantra that specialization is for insects and that every person should be abroad, you know, have all these different skills. But then we had to start hiring uh, rarefied skills, data science, Music experience design. You know, machine learning is not something you can just pick up and be a generalist about a lot of other stuff and also be deep in that as well. So I think that we're seeing more and more increased specialization in the software world and in software architecture. And I think it's going to continue that way. Um, I think the analogy here is uh, medicine. As you know, before the American Civil War, medicine was basically a bottle of whiskey and a hacksaw and not much else. And I, I uh, talked to someone recently who is a doctor who specializes in one kind of blood disease, which is how specialized medicine has gotten. And I think that's kind of the path that we're going to go, probably not to that degree and quite so quickly. But, you know, we're, we're asked to do more and more specialized things with software, and it requires more and more specialized skills. And so I think over time, we're going to see more and more of that uh, manifest itself. And so what that means from a uh, an architect standpoint is one of the things that Mark and I talk about is focus on breadth and not depth. And this is unnatural for most architects because the way you got to be an architect was by exhibiting great technical depth in a lot of things. You can solve problems. The problem with technical depth, though, in software is the stuff you know is the stuff you have to maintain, that knowledge about. If I'm an expert in Ruby on Rails right now, and I don't touch Ruby on Rails for a year, I'm no longer an expert in Ruby on Rails. And so there's a certain cost that comes along with expertise. And as an architect, and, and actually as you ascend the levels of the organization, uh, Gregor Hopi has a great book called The Architect Elevator that uses the elevator metaphor of, you know, at the bottom, the engineering wing, you know, all the way up to the penthouse and how decisions are made there. But as you ride that elevator up, you need more breadth because you're going to be faced with more and more broader decisions that have deeper and more significant trade-offs. And the more breadth you have, the more experience you have about uh, knowing some of those details, the better off you are. And so that's part of what I tell architects is you need a distinctive learning plan. It can't be as ad hoc as it was when you're a developer, when you were mostly just chasing shiny things. You need to be a little more diligent about making sure that you're addressing some of the places where you may not have enough breadth to make the kinds of decisions that you are going to be asked to make within the next six months. Yeah, as, as you were describing that, I was thinking like, you know, we as, de as developers primarily, Clayton and I, um, spending our days mostly in code and if, if not more meetings these days, but it is we we has we have to stay on top of our coding chops in order to implement the 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 features and the behaviors that are being asked of the systems that we're developing but also having the broad scope of knowledge that is required to understand how these systems work together is is a very daunting task that it you can't specialize in the one thing 
if you are going to be able to cover the capabilities of an entire system, an entire ecosystem. Yeah, it's, it's one of the constant challenges of uh, software architecture, which is one of the reasons that, uh, and this comes a little bit full circle as well, we actually say that enterprise architects should not be making technology decisions. They should be deciding on capabilities, not technologies. And the way you codify those tech, those capabilities is with enterprise architecture level fitness functions around platform capabilities. So that's the idea because, I mean, you're exactly right. The further you are away from the day-to-day of code, the less qualified you are to make really technical decisions about that. But you can, as enterprise architects, in that holistic view of the enterprise, say, okay, out of the accounting functionality. I need this kind of performance and scale and elasticity for the next five years. Let's just check that capability and then free the architects on on those systems to make those decisions. And that's good in two ways. One, it keeps enterprise architects out of making technology decisions, which are not qualified to make, but it also lets you grow your next generation of architects because you're allowing them to make decisions of consequence, which is the only way they're going to learn to, you know, make decisions of consequence and, you know, deal with them when things don't go well, et cetera. I mean, that's part of uh, growth and leadership. Yeah, we've got another episode that we've been kicking around an idea of recording like a uh, a nightmares episode of talking about lesson like horror stories or and things like that. Um, you know what what do we do when it goes sideways when it goes wrong? To to Clayton's point, you know we we were acting architects in in smaller companies, smaller teams, and and made the wrong choices. We didn't pick the least wrong choice. We picked the most wrong choice. Maybe uh, I've, I've seen companies that have decided that they, they need a new capability, a new part of a system. And so they have a template and they spin up, uh, you know, here, here's what an application looks like or a microservice looks like in our system. And so we need to spin up these resources and, and go, uh, you know, we're, we're not putting in the amount of thought of defining what the things we are building are and what the capabilities need to be we have defined we have predefined a thing and not really evaluated the needs of a current system or we've got architects that are saying making choices saying no no to kubernetes because we don't know kubernetes even though that may or may not be a viable solution to to uh, deliver the capabilities that are being asked asked of the system So there are a couple of things there. One thing that we do a lot, this is where iterative design comes in. You can't just throw a design up and go, all right, that looks good. Let's try that. But you can't iterate on it. So what we will do is do a lines and boxes exercise of Kubernetes is a good example. Okay, we need container orchestration. So we have two different ways we could do that. We could manually do that ourselves, or we can use a tool like Kubernetes to do that. And so let's sketch out a couple of the designs and, and walk through some of the scenarios. Okay, here's a happy path. Here's the unhappy path. What happens if one of these dies? How do we get it? How do we get it back to life in the correct order of instantiation, et cetera? So let's walk through that and see what that looks like. We build a lot of spreadsheets at this analysis phase of architecture to say, okay, let's fix like three things and let's, okay, tweak that. And how would that affect this system? And that's how you do iterative design and architecture with, you know, lines and boxes and whiteboards and get to a point where you can actually start measuring stuff so that you can, we talk about this in our book of moving from qualitative to quantitative analysis. The qualitative analysis is, well, given what I know about our system, changing this from synchronous to asynchronous will increase scalability and responsiveness, but will make a choreographer or make a 
concurrency more difficult. And now you can do trade-offs. And once you get to two or three possibilities, then you can actually implement those and measure them directly to see uh, which one of these uh, is in fact true. And of course, you can evolve those into an ongoing check that you can just build as part of your system. The other thing that you have to do, and this is part of the last chapter of our hard parts book, is uh, you you mentioned uh, one of the traps that you have to avoid falling into, which is uh, the the complicated terms for this is a Misi list, but the uh, simple term is uh, compare apples to apples. So if you're going to say we're going to use Kubernetes or not, you can't just say it's Kubernetes versus you know this little orchestration thing. You have to look at the entirety of what Kubernetes gives you, because Kubernetes is actually five or six things. Well, if we're going to implement that ourselves, we need to re- replace those five or six things and think about the effort required to integrate those five or six things together, and that's the actual trade-off. So MISI list is mutually exclusive, but uh, uh, combinatorially exhaustive or collectively exhaustive. Uh, either one of those works. Uh, it's a way of getting to apples to apples comparison and don't leave any big gaps in your analysis because this is where evangelism comes in. Somebody says, oh, Kubernetes is too hard. So we'll, we'll pick some other wild, crazy idea to implement. It's like, hold on. Okay, difficulty in learning is one of the trade-offs for Kubernetes, but let's look at all the other trade-offs of this crazy idea this, that you're talking about. You know, we got to learn all that stuff too, and this, and the, but building that trade-off analysis is really the job of architect. Don't get caught up in evangelizing one solution or the other because they're all going to be wrong one way or the other. It's the wrongness that you're looking for, and the the ability to you know iterate and and get to a good design. I think is the the critical thing. So you've mentioned a couple things several times so far. So you've you've mentioned the iterative architecture. Uh, you've you've mentioned the fitness tests. Um, is there an architectural starter kit? Like, is there is there some starting point? That, so so regardless of the application, I'm going to start here. We'll start evaluating this in this case, and then we'll branch out from there. Is there is there something like that? A block of clay or a seed that that we can start from? That's a good question. And and we've actually, there've been a couple of stabs at ThoughtWorks to create, you know, a, a starter kit for ThoughtWorks projects. But I think it's analogous to saying, hey, I built this one insurance application. I've got all these unit tests. Can I just use all these unit tests as the seed for another insurance application? If you want to get sued by your previous company, sure. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, the problem is the devil's in the details always, as generic as you think it is. We actually started, we've actually made several stabs at this at ThoughtWorks over the more than decade of, you know, for a while, every project that we were using is use Java and use the same kind of continuous integration. So it's like, it's crazy to set this up on every, so let's create a starter kit. So now the grand argument goes into what goes in the starter kit. You know, what is the sensible default? So once you get all that resolved, it turns out that when we built the thing, then you'd get it on a project. It's like, oh, well, this is different with the default. So we've got to change that. And, oh, well, this is different. And you ended up customizing it to the point where it's like, well, it's different in every case. And I think that's probably true of the architecture. Now, what you see, so you can't get the whole architecture, but you can get building blocks. And that's really what I think we have in microservices now. So, you know, I'm, I'm big on analogy. So here's my analogy for that. Um, you know, if you're building a house, you can build a prefabricated house, which is one where the walls are already, you know, studded in and, you know, standard ranch houses, you know, you can build those really quickly. That's the ecosystem support you get for stuff like microservices because you've got Kubernetes and you've got testing frameworks and all these other tools. 
But if you need to build some crazy house, you got to go to the lumber yard and pour your own concrete and your own floor plan, et cetera. And that's, you can build that with events and messages and all that other stuff. It's just a lot more difficult, but you get unique capabilities out of it. So that's the kind of trade-off that you're looking at. So I think we do have sort of starter kits, but it's in the material space, not in the structural space. I don't think, I think structures are still unique enough that we can't, unify enough on those but the building materials i think we can and then and we're seeing you know, kubernetes is a great example of a lot of capabilities that are wrapped up in you know a nice package kafka is another great example of terraform you know the ability to declaratively build cloud environments is a nice example of those kind of capabilities so wh- what else what else do you wish other uh, aspiring or seasoned architects knew about or discussed more or what do you, what do you wish uh, software developers knew or thought more about in the architecture space? Well, it, it comes down to trade-offs. I find so many people who get caught up in evangelizing ideas without looking at trade-offs or missing uh, what the trade-offs are. And, uh, one of the things I, I have this talk with every client that I bump into now is I keep hearing clients say, we want uh, really, really highly decoupled systems and we want a really high degree of reuse. It's like, okay, but how do you implement reuse through coupling? You can't have both those things. Those are within that statement you were saying, you know, you're, you're giving me countering opinions. So which one do you actually want? Because it turns out that reuse has cost and you're not looking at the trade-offs. That's the thing that I wish more developers, more business people would look at because business people will come to you and say, oh, well, that whole complicated workflow absolutely has to be transactional. It's like, do you know how difficult it will be to make, do you know how many trade-offs it would take to make that transaction on how ugly and awful that will be, you know, versus virtually nothing in the real world acts like a two-phase commit transaction. There's a famous essay. I mentioned Gregor uh, twice here by Gregor Hope about uh, Starbucks does not do a two-phase commit, which is about businesses don't do two-phase commit transactions. It's all eventual consistency, but you know, that's one of those things that people ask for. And so, understanding how much software really is about balancing one trade-off against another. I don't, I don't, it does not seem like that's penetrated much beyond software architects, which I think is why software architects are so grumpy most of the time, because we don't have any clean binary decisions. Everything's a messy uh, shade of gray trade-off. John is definitely an architect then. (laughs) I'm not always grumpy. (laughs) Just when I talk to you, Clayton. (laughs) (laughs) It's an occupational hazard, the grumpiness. Because you're always dealing with difficult decisions and, you know, messy trade-offs. So that's, there's no uh, there's no easy, uh, clear-cut decision like uh, IntelliJ versus Eclipse or, you know, something like that. Oh, that's easy. IntelliJ all day long. <laughs> I do like IntelliJ. It's, it's hard being the only person in the room that's right all the time. No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> In in listening to uh, the fundamentals of software architecture on on Audible, I there there were several key phrases that that uh, that hit home that resonated that I'm I'm trying to remember and and use more as a mantra. Like we're not going to pick the right choice; we're going to pick the least bad and, and things like that. I think these are are very important concepts, uh, very important things to keep in mind as we're designing the systems because. You know, like like Clayton said, we're going to pick the wrong one, but might as well pick it, figure out what we can from it, recover from it, pivot, adjust its software. It's easy enough to change it. We should 
you know, not be scared of our decisions, but it, instead just make progress towards a goal and adjust our sales as needed. I think that's the right perspective. Is it? I think it was the the uh, Google uh, search engine. Well, somebody recently said, uh, you know, uh, coding is just coding, but uh, coding over time is software development, software engineering, and software architecture is very much coding over time. A lot of developers get caught up in the here and now of it, but software architects have to look at that fourth dimension of time. How is this decision now? going to affect this six months, two years down the road. And so time is always of the essence for architects and, and less so often for developers. Well, we'll be sure to include uh, resource links to your books, of course, and uh, to the most recent article you mentioned by Gregor. Uh, are there are there any other resources that you want folks to be sure to to reach out and, and look for or, or explore on their own? Absolutely. So uh, there's one fantastic resource that if your listeners don't know about it, then it's worth uh, going to immediately after this is over, which is uh, the website developer-architect.com. That was created by my co-author, Mark Richards, uh, several years ago uh, to help this transition from developer into architect. In fact, he created that website just about the time we started thinking about these workshops that led to uh, the Fundamentals book. And one of the fantastic resources that Mark has on that website is every two weeks, he puts a little five to 10 minute instructional video up and he's nearly a hundred of them now. And I take partial credit for the presence of those videos, even though I have not lifted a single finger toward helping him create any of them. Because two and a half years ago, when he said, I'm going to start recording a video every couple of weeks, I told him, there's no way you'll ever be able to keep that up. And to spite me, he has continued to do it now for like two and a half years. So I'm, I'm careful to every six months or so to poke at him and say, oh, you're, you'll never keep that up. And that'll keep that resource going for Ever. So I'm taking partial credit for the presence of that uh, really, really useful resource. But it is a, a gold mine because it's these little difficult topics in software architecture, just a little five to 10 minute lesson to uh, you know enlighten you about some interesting facet of software architecture. So it's a fantastic resource. I'm also uh, a podcast host myself. So uh, thoughtworks.com slash podcasts, the ThoughtWorks Technology Podcast. And I'm also one of the co-creators of the ThoughtWorks Technology Radar. So you were asking earlier about how do you keep up with brand new shiny things in technology. The ThoughtWorks Technology Radar is a great way to do that. It it's, uh, comes out twice a year. It's this free interactive website. We get a group of practitioners across all of our projects together and uh, comment about technologies, whether it's really good, whether it's really bad, et cetera. And it's a great way to find things that you didn't know existed out in the world and things that you want to experiment with or, and things that we have used in production and found very useful, uh, which are things that show up in our trial ring. So this is a great way to help that uh, that technology breadth we were talking about earlier of you know learning about new things and new capabilities. It's a, a great resource. And we just got together to put together the next one a couple of weeks ago. So by the end of, uh, by, by mid-April, there should be a new edition of the Radar Out. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? 
I think I was really lucky in my career that I got to do a lot of different things. I got to work on a lot of different technology stacks and a lot of different projects. I worked on Java projects and .NET projects. My first book was actually about Delphi. Uh, and I think that in the long run has, has really helped me because it's, you know, I'm, I'm a natural pattern matcher. So, you know, I can see what things work. I was also a big language, computer language geek. So I loved looking at the differences in computer languages and how, you know, one approach in this language translates to another language, et cetera. So, but I've, you know, I've always been very curious about technology and software and related things. Um, so I think that's helped me more than anything else. I think it, it, in this career, it helps a lot if you really love technology. And it's, at, you know, my wife says that at some point, my career and my hobby just sort of merged into one thing, and, uh, which is where the book writing and that kind of stuff comes from. But, you know, that's the thing that makes it not such a terrible slog, but, you know, something that uh, is uh, intellectually challenging, even if it's tiring. So where can our listeners go to keep up with you and, and find out what you're working on? Uh, I have a website, uh, neilford.com, which is just my name, N-E-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. I was early enough to the internet that I got my name as a vanity site. That lists all the uh, uh, in-person and upcoming uh, uh, events that I'm doing. Uh, we've started building companion websites for all of our books uh, based on the title. So uh, there's an evolutionaryarchitecture.com website. There's a fundamentalsofsoftwarearchitecture.com and a softwarearchitecturetheharddparts.com. And those are great places to go if you're curious about more resources, uh, uh, et cetera, about uh, any of those books. That was Neil Ford. Neil Ford is director, software architect, and meme wrangler at ThoughtWorks, a global IT consultancy with a focus on end-to-end software development and delivery. His professional focus includes designing and building of large-scale enterprise applications. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Six Figure Dev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.